Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Genesis. I'll be reading Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Blessed is the reading of God's holy revelation to us. Father, I... I pray for us image bearers, creatures affected by sin and the fall and all things are distorted and broken. And therefore, I pray that you help us as those who were made to contemplate you, to think and to love and worship what we see of you. Help us this morning do that a little deeper. Glorify your name, yourself, and your presence. Cause the very spirit of your eternal Son whom you have put in all those who are born again, that we do cry out to you, Abba, Father, precisely because he cries out to you, Abba, Father. Let us hear this morning in the presence of that Spirit to the glory of your name. Amen. This is week three in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. Last week, we cracked open his story, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and we saw that the theme of redemptive history is that God created everything that is not God for His glory. He created humanity in His image precisely in order to reflect His glory outward, outside of Himself in creation. Or to say that differently, God created everything so that His glory might be the joy, the happiness, the delight of the creature. The end of the story, I'll jump there for a moment, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, says it this way in Revelation 4, The twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever 
saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because You created all things. And by Your will, they existed and were created. Anyone who has been to Yosemite Valley or stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon or just has witnessed a sunset down in Manhattan Beach over the Pacific Ocean, unless something's really wrong with you, you know what it is to be moved by nature. And in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, tells us that the creation is a display of the majesty, the glory, the power, the worshipfulness of God. And that all creation that we image bearers see through our eyes or hear in our ears and our mind contemplates and thinks about, they're there in order that we see God's glory in them. We, as human beings, according to this passage that we have seen, are created in order to respond. A rock doesn't do it. And we do it in a way that a dog or a dolphin cannot. To respond to that glory. And that's why we're told in Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. This is the pinnacle of God's creation. And it has a purpose. And the purpose is God. His glory. The glory, the essence the beauty, the goodness of God is so great that He created everything and living creatures and then the human being who would not merely have an intellect to think and to be aware, but have a will in order that that human being would delight in His glory. And thus, through His and her delight in it would reflect through creation the beauty of His eternal essence. And that's why the six days of creation we saw last week, then ending on the seventh day, God rested. Not because He was tired, it's the point is that it's done 
It's complete. And this is the big point of it all. This is the foundation. This is the foundational understanding of the whole Bible, of all of redemptive history. To say that differently, this is the story of creation which is a love story. In creating the human being in his own image, God gave to us the unique ability to know and to delight or love or find our sustenance and contentment and happiness in Him. That is, in the highest and most beautiful and most desirable thing imaginable, which is God Himself. Or to say it this way, the glory of God. God Himself loves, meaning finds the source of His joy, loves it like that. He, he loves nothing more than He loves His own glory. There is nothing higher. There is nothing better to love than that. There is nothing more beautiful for him to fall in love with. And out of that eternal love in the Godhead, he created you. Created me in order that we would participate in his glory as image bearers. And what this means is that God's glory, rather than our own inherent worth, it is God's glory that guarantees God's love, His mercy, and His interest in us, His creatures. God created and He does all things for the sake of His glory. Say that differently. For the sake of His goodness being extended in the creation. Do you remember Moses? God, show me Your glory. God's response Okay, a little bit. Put him in the cleft of the rock. And he said, I will pass by and show you all my goodness. A synonym for God's glory. Okay, what I have just said, it is the foundation of the building of redemptive history. It's the foundation of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It, it, it is the blueprint that guides one to grasp what is God up to. See, if you have no blueprint and you, you, you only lived in a cave and you come to Los Angeles and you see a building construction beginning, there's a blueprint that an architectural firm has drawn up and there are finished pictures and drawings and, and then every page in the building process. But you don't know anything about the blueprint. All you see is a bunch of grunts carrying lumber and wood and dumping it and cement trucks and big machines digging holes. You have no idea how the pieces fit. And so many of us open up the Bible and we have no idea. How does Abel and Cain and Cain and Seth and Noah and Babel and Abraham and David and the prophets, how are all these pieces of this redemptive history, this building, how, what is their goal? What's their purpose? I don't know, just one story after another. See, if we fail to grasp this, the glory of God Himself is the foundation and the blueprint and the cause and the goal of everything. And to that extent, our building may not stand when the earthquake comes. We may be one of those soils Jesus told about. The gospel, Jesus saves me. I want it. Yes! And you hear seeker-sensitive sermons that just seem to praise why you're so worthy. Because God loves the creature. They don't say it, but it's implied. More than He loves His glory. He saw you and was just, I can't turn away. It's so beautiful. I've got to get them. And you love it, as Jesus says. And for joy, it just springs up for a while. Because the foundation of your religion is, I'm at the center of the universe. And God recognized it. And He sent Jesus to save me. And then, that tragedy happens. And then the unexpected comes about. How could he let that happen? And as Jesus said, it bears no fruit. It proves false. Because you have it all backward. And therefore, I know we began, we've opened up the book last week, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then he unfolds to the sixth, and then the seventh day rests of his purpose for his glory. But we must, for a few weeks, stop here in order to ask the question, what does that mean, really? in order to unfold more fully what it means for God to create for His glory and to act in creation always for the sake of His glory. Or to say it this way, over the next 
few weeks. What is God's glory? And then, if that's true, then why did He create, or what was the motivation to do it? If we get a vision for this, for God Himself, here's my prayer, that we will grow a little deeper to understand a little more fully what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, for from Him and through Him and back unto Him be the glory forever and ever. So this morning we start with this one huge, massive question. What is it eternally, without beginning, what is it eternally about God? Forget about before creation. What is it about Him that makes Him this is the essence of His being perfectly and eternally complete. Self-sufficient. Fully happy that His glory would be our eternal good. Or to say it this way, the gospel's clear. You want real joy forever? Come to me. Christ purchased it. There's a resurrection coming. And it will be a participation in the joy and the glory of God. And so if God Himself is to be our unending, full, eternal, and greatest joy. Here's the question. What is God's greatest joy? Do you just think if you told some single woman, this man will be your husband, you're going to get married and you're going to find marital joy. And you learned, what is that guy's joy? And you learned that it was selfishness, backbiting, grumpiness. Do you see the problem? <laughs> There's going to be something wrong with her really finding joy and being married to that man if he continues that way. What is God's joy that He could be our greatest joy? And so we must go back before the words in the beginning. So we must ask, who is God? So, here we go. I'm going to make a statement that I think, here I am, it is bold and prove me wrong later, that'd be great. But I think it's axiomatic. It's a self-evident truth if you're thinking 
rationally about a creator. And that is this. God is absolutely needless. God is perfectly and absolutely and fully happy. God is the essence of pure contentment. I take that as an absolute given. Just like two plus two is four. Because to think anything other than that is absolutely absurd. So, so let me, why? Why? Okay, think about it. The God of the Scripture, indeed the God of any idea of a one God creating all, is omniscient. He's all-knowing. And He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful, meaning He has the power or the ability to do anything He so wills to do. Another way to say it, anything that His knowledge, His omniscience, would dictate that He would do. And therefore, I think it is an absolute self-evident fact that God has the ability to be, to exist in any way He deems best. Okay. Okay. Just come with me on this. If you buy that, leads to the second point or conclusion from that. If that's true, therefore God in His eternal, unbounded knowledge, wisdom, has always led him through his omnipotence, power, will, to be infinitely happy, infinitely contented. Not one bored or grumpy or dissatisfied moment. Why? Well, because to think that God ordered His being from all eternity with infinite wisdom and knowledge. Stop, okay? We, we reflect Him because we have knowledge, but we don't have His incommunicable omniscience. We have the idea of knowledge which reflects something of knowledge. And we all the time make decisions because we have blind spots. We have Areas we don't understand or don't know that that was there, etc., 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 lack wisdom. Does God? No. Therefore, there's nothing ever hidden from Him when it comes to how shall I be in wisdom or in understanding. Therefore, to think that He ordered His being from that eternal, infinite wisdom and omnipotence or ability to be in such a way that would have resulted in Him being little bit less than fully happy is an absurd thought. It is saying 2 plus 2 equals 7. Just come with me on it, if that be true. Here's the question. What is it about 
God then that must be true for him to be perfectly happy, infinitely content? What must be true about God if that's so? The answer is, he must, with all of his omnipotence, power, he must, with all of his omnipotent energy, delight in that which is of supreme value and delightfulness and beauty. Which happens to be himself. For God not to do so would be idolatry. Because it would be a failure to value what is supremely valuable. He would know because of his omniscience what is of supreme worth. He would understand what is of supreme goodness and beauty and all satisfying, and then he would choose to turn away from appropriately, which means for him, omnipotently, valuing it, loving it, enjoying it, delighting in it. Let me put it another way. Because God is God, because he is omniscient, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, Therefore, God, by definition and without beginning, He has a completely clear, undistorted knowledge of Himself. That's His being. The knowledge that he has of himself is as a subject beholds himself as his own object. And the object in person is not the subject because the knowledge is not bounded or limited. It is infinitely unlimited and perfect. We reflect God as His image, not His incommunicable attributes, but His communicable. We know what it is to be self conscious as a human. Good, my wife's not in here right now, so she won't laugh. More and more, the older I get, the more I think I do it. She hears me have any conversations in my study. She opens the door. She says, who are you talking to? It's getting more embarrassing as I get older. Because I talk to myself. I don't even know I'm doing it at times. I'm very conscious of myself. I have conversations with myself. But... I am not literally as a subject talking to a clone of Joe sitting over there and that other. It's not like that. Because I'm finite. I'm the creature. Everything is fuzzy. But God is eternal. 
is infinite. His knowledge is unlimited. It is perfectly clear. It is not ever like, okay, there's the real knowledge. Let me see it reflected as my own object. So it's like a photocopy of a page. No, because there's something a little distorted, whether you can see it or not, that is less than the original. Not with the eternal one. And thus God eternally sees and loves the image of His divine nature. Infinitely, omnipotently, omnisciently, and perfectly that He is the becoming or the begotting of His own nature as His object standing forth up against Him, the subject. And thus for all eternity, God has been omnipotently with all of his energy and power, has been delighting in his own perfections, his own glory, as a subject loves and delights in the object of his affections. As long as God has been God, he has been conscious of himself. That's his omniscience. And the image he has of himself is perfect. It is eternal. It is so infinitely complete that that image is a living, personal begetting of himself. In other words, the object that God the Father, the subject, looks, beholds in the mirror of his eternality, that object is co-eternal, co-equal in essence, in being. He is indeed the second person of the Holy Trinity. The Son in whom the Father delights is the eternal image reflection of God. It is thus God. And so Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 declares about the second person who took to himself human nature. He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and is the exact imprint of His nature. Paul declares in Philippians chapter 2, Christ is the one who though He was in the form of God, the morphe or nature of God, he did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning causing him to say, I will not become a human being. No, no, he didn't do that. He became human. So, so as Paul says, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born of Mary. 
And in Colossians 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created. And so the Son in whom the Father eternally, without beginning, delights in is His own image. The Son reflects the radiance of God's divine glory. He indeed is equal with God in being. Essence. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we open up to the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 1, and he declares about his buddy, his friend, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became human and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten or God of the Father. The Son has been eternally begotten. As the Creed says, for good reason, begotten, not made. Let me just pause for a minute. And we'll get to the Holy Spirit in a minute. But when we contemplate God for who He is, His Holy Trinity, as you take a shower or lie in bed, a person who loves Jesus, just want to give you some little boundaries just to keep you away from heresy because we all may tend to go there. So what we do not mean and what we as the church for 2,000 years in universal ecumenical councils in the 300s, 400s, and 500s on this issue are saying this. When we talk about God as one God who eternally exists in three persons, we do not mean the heresy of modalism. We don't mean, yes, God is one person, of course, and then He has different roles. So He plays the role of the Father. And then in the Incarnation, He plays the role of the Son. And then He then comes as the Holy Spirit and plays that role. We don't mean that. We don't mean like, like, like I'm one person. Here I am. I have different hats I wear. In one relationship, and it's only to one human being, I play the role of husband. And to six other human beings, I play the role of dad. And to a number of other persons, I play the role of pastor. But I don't mean three distinct persons. It's one person playing different roles. That is not who God is. Secondly, we do not mean that Jesus was this superior historical character whom God preordained, and then this human being he adopted into divine whatever. So he's like, now he's divine where he wasn't before. We don't mean something like that. And thirdly, we do not mean the heresy of Arianism. We do not mean to say, Jesus, our Savior, is 
far superior to any human being. Adam and Eve themselves. He is the firstborn. Far superior in His creation. Eh. No. Arianism declares He is not one in essence with God the Father. Wrong. He is. God has never been anything but one God who has therefore always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, not three distinct natures. One nature, three persons. Okay. Can you keep yourself away from those heresies maybe? Good. Alright. So, let's go back. Since... The Son is the image of God and the radiance of God and the form or morphe of God and equal with God and indeed is God. Therefore, God's delight in the Son is His delight in Himself. And therefore, God's eternal Infinite happiness and contentment and joy is the joy he has in his own perfections as he sees them reflected in his Son. Now, if you ever have the thought, <coughs> I wonder if God really fully delights in His Son. And if God, the Son, really fully delights, loves, cherishes, adores, I will use the word, worships the Father. If you ever thought, maybe only 99.999% did He do that. If you ever have that thought, you can get rid of it forever now because God is a trinity. That His infinite, eternal, unbounded energy of adoration and sucking in the beauty of happiness which is Himself reflected in the Son and for the Son to the Father. Did, did He lack any adoration? No, because that very community of love and adoration has eternally and always stood forced omnipotently as the third person of the Holy Trinity. Let me quote for you, I'm quote two, two men, one first from the 1700s, in many of our minds, the greatest philosopher, theologian in American history, Jonathan Edwards, says it this way. The Godhead being thus begotten by God's loving an idea of Himself and showing forth in a distinct subsistence or person in that idea 
there proceeds a pure act and an infinitely holy and sacred energy arising between the Father and Son in mutually loving and delighting in each other. So that the Godhead therein stands forth in yet another manner of subsistence. And there proceeds the third person in the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been eternally Again, that means without beginning. Eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. C.S. Lewis, in contemplating this in Beyond Personality, writes, Perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions is that in Christianity... God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you won't think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. I know that's almost inconceivable, but look at it this way. You know that among human beings, when they get together in a family or a club or a trades union, People talk about the spirit of that family, or club, or trades union. They talk about its spirit because the individual members, when they are together, do really develop particular ways of talking and behaving which they wouldn't have if they were apart. It is as if a sort of communal personality came into existence. Well, of course, it isn't a real person. It is only rather like a person. Lewis concludes. But that's just one of the differences between God and us. What grows out of the joint life of the Father and Son is a real person, is in fact the third of the three persons who are God. And so, in John 17, in his humanity, Jesus speaks, the Son speaks to the Father. The second person addresses 
the first person. The begotten is praying to the eternal begetter. Quote, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, in order to see my glory that you have given me here in my humanity, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, my apostles, know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I'm going to read that last line one more time. Because any of us sinners, along with John, the Apostle, who experience what Jesus just said there in His prayer, that is new birth. The only way we sinners will ever come to love the Father is if Jesus shares His glory with us. Meaning, only if the Spirit of His Son is put into our hearts in new birth, crying, Abba. Father, so that the love, Father, with which You have loved me may be in them, and that I, who love You, may be in them. God's very essence. That's another way to say God's very glory, the essence of His being. That when He creates, then it shines outward like the sun. But the essence of His eternality before He ever created, His internal activity is His love, His worship, His delight, His fulfilling, satisfying joy and happiness that the Father has in the Son, and the Son has in the Father, personified in the Holy Spirit. So, when I say, God created everything for His glory. That's what I mean. Now in saying God worships and delights and acts and moves always for 
His glory sounds to creatures who are sinful like vanity, like conceitedness, like selfishness. Of course it does. Why? Because that's exactly what it would mean if, if we creatures found our deepest joy and delight in looking in the mirror. That is sin. That is pride. That is idolatry. Why is it idolatry? Why is that sinful for us? Because we are the creature. We have been created for something infinitely better than the reflection of ourselves in the mirror. Infinitely greater and more beautiful and deeper than our own self-contemplation. We have been created for the contemplation and enjoyment of God. Another way to say that is, we've been created for His glory. Can anything ever be offered to the creature that's better than that? I saw one head nod no. Therefore, the greatest news in all creation is that God has made a way for us sinners who have rejected that very beauty to be brought back into tasting it for all eternity and shared His glory with us. Therefore, the idea that God would ever neglect Himself would be to our eternal detriment. For we creatures, anything less than living for, seeing, pursuing the beauty, the satisfaction of the eternal fountain who is God, is idolatry. Because God is the most glorious, worthy, pure, beautiful, of all beings. And not to respond as the creature with yes is sin. To not respond with you are delightful is a great insult to his eternal worth. That's why it seems conceited to us unless we stop and think like we're doing at this moment. Because the same would be true for God. In other words, we've asked it about us. We ask it about God. How will God not insult what is infinitely beautiful and glorious? How is it that God will not commit idolatry? There's only one possible answer. God 
must love and delight in his own beauty and perfections above all things, all ways and fully. For us to do this in front of the mirror is the essence of sin and idolatry. For God to do it in the mirror of His Son is the essence of righteousness and holiness. And so the righteousness of God is the infinite, unbounded zeal, omnipotence, and joy satisfaction that he has in his own worth. It is his glory. And if he were ever, ever to act, to move, to adjust, contrary to this eternal passion for his glory, then he would be unrighteous. He would be an idolater. He would be sinful. And he doesn't. And that is God's glory. That is the essence of who he is. And he has made a creature who is very other than him. He is transcendent. And yet, there are many of his attributes that are shared with the creature, they're communicable, and thus he has made that creature to reflect his image. As God loves God eternally, the creature finitely is to share in the love that God has for God. The Father to the Son and the Son to the Father, personified in the person of the Spirit to whom he is given to those who believe. So, we will go to the next question next week. But as I close, this is a sermon. I'm a pastor. You're God's people. What's the practical application? There is one. And it is this. Think about what was said. Prayerfully be obsessed over the reality that God is the most excellent and worthy and beautiful of all beings precisely because He has loved the Son, His image, the image of His glory with infinite and perfect energy from all eternity. That's the take-home. Contemplate how unboundedly happy the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of delight flowing between them have been for all eternity. And then reread Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created everything. It's not God. And made man to reflect his image. And then join in. 
join in as Christians, as believers in Jesus, into the joy that God has in His eternal image, His glory, namely His Son. This is the essence of the God who in the beginning created created everything for the extension outward of that very glory. So I, I'm going to close with this because I'm going to, I mean what I'm going to say and I, I hope you at least, okay, he really means that, I do. This sermon that I'm ending in the next 30 seconds is absolutely vital for the next 28 weeks. We don't just move on to one another. This is the tie that binds it all together. So know that. Keep that. Question it. Pester me, if you would, about it. Let God cause you to cry with happiness as you sit alone front of your Bible and your thoughts and your prayers. Amen. Let's go. Father, would you continue to glorify your name this morning as we sing throughout this week, this month in our lives. May you cause us to see that this is the foundation that is never to be moved away from. So that in all the chaos of this present evil world, in the macro and in the micro, there's purpose. There's purpose. Oh, we covet, Father, the working and the moving of the presence of your very love for your Son. And, oh, Son, your eternal love for the Father in the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Amen.